0: Hey y'all, today's show is a special crossover episode with Matt and David over at Pints with Jack. The four of us recently sat down and discussed the movie adaptation of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. However, this is part two of that discussion. Part one of the discussion is over in the Pints with Jack feed, which I'll link to below. So if you haven't listened to part one, go check out Pints with Jack and you can return here for part two. Welcome back to the Lamppost Listener. My name is Daniel. I'm Phil. And this is a podcast where we journey chapter by chapter through C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. This is the second episode of our discussion on 20th Century Fox's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Welcome back, Phil.
1: Thanks, good to be back. Been a
0: while. It has been a while. We are in the midst of seasons 3 and 4 of our show, uh, and I know some people that bumps people out that we're not talking about a book, but hey, we have some really special guests today. Uh, we have Matt and David from the Pints with Jack podcast, who we are so excited to be on the show.
2: It's wonderful to be here. Thank
0: you. Yeah, it
3: is fantastic. Excited to be here. Thanks for inviting us on.
0: Yeah. And Matt, this is your first time on the show. And David, you're a returning champion here from the first season. <laughs> yes.
3: Yes. I'm the rookie. I am going to win yeah. the most improved rookie award of the year. <laughs> Very
1: nice. So I feel like we have to ask, what are you guys drinking? <laughs>
3: We'll let the, the champion go first, I guess. <laughs> Seniority.
2: Okay, that seems fair. Uh, I am drinking some rum since we're on board the Dawn Treader. It only seemed appropriate.
3: I'm drinking some wild turkey American honey, which is exceptionally smooth liqueur blended with pure honey in bourbon whiskey. And I chose this, of course, because of the cinnamon flavor. It just it all reminded me of the book and the movie. <laughs> They have to listen to our old, they have to listen to the last part to be able to get that inside joke. Daniel
1: is drinking apple juice, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> I,
0: I, am, I am drinking apple cinnamon uh, mead from Charm City uh, Mead Works, which I, I mentioned back uh, in part one, which I'll, I'll speak about in a second, that uh, I picked it for its, uh, the mead because there's mead that is drunk in uh, the magician's house. And then it's also quite sweet, like the sweet water that we find at the end of the world. And the
3: joke was when you did that on the last episode, I was like, "Yeah, that's
0: exactly why I chose American Honey." As exactly. Well. Yeah, I'm sure people really love hearing us make the same jokes twice in a row. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a
1: reward for listening to both episodes. Yeah.
0: And, and so, speaking of that, we should mention that this is uh, part two of the of our discussion of the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. So, uh, for some reason, listeners haven't heard part one. Uh, go back and listen to that first, because we are going to jump right into. Uh, our discussion of the movie. Although I think I cut you off, Phil. You didn't share it with us what you're drinking. I'm having water and it's from the tap. <laughs> <laughs>
2: 2020, is that is not a good year. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. 2020. So uh, let, let's just kind of do a quick check in and take our pulse on this movie so far. So we we left off in the last episode with uh, The Tempest Had Come. Lucy had had uh, had uh, done her magic spell to make her beautiful, and that's where we stopped. So let's just go around the table here, and you know, h- how are you feeling? We'll start with you, Matt.
3: Yeah. Um, well, first of all, I loved that last scene, so let's just start with that. That was one of my favorite scenes from the movie. It was one that they took some, I guess, artistic discretion on, and deviated from the book and the way they portrayed it. And I thought it was brilliant. So overall, I think we all were in green ingredients that we didn't love the movie adaption, that there was some parts that were some struggles. And we talked about the green mist, not really loving that aspect of it. And some of the cheesier things they did, but that one was my favorite scene. And it was essentially where she wanted to see herself beautiful. And she essentially wished herself away in her current form in the way they portrayed that, oh, it just blew my mind because that's such a good message. So I'm loving our discussion so far. I'm learning a lot, actually, because you guys are so knowledgeable on it. Obviously, I got all of David's wisdom when him and I did it on the book. But I'm loving hearing you and uh, Phil. And it's been fantastic so far.
1: David, how about you?
2: For myself, I have called this the Rise of Skywalker of the Narnia movies. So uh, the best one? I love the duck.
0: Don't, don't no. do that here. Please don't do it here. You yeah, have be far all out. All right, of this it. is uh, Matt's first and last time on the. Show. No, I'm just kidding. We accept. <laughs> we accept any and all Star Wars opinions. I do not want to add on to any kind of uh, like hatred toward. I, I, we love Star Wars here. Sorry, I didn't. I mean, interrupt you. Star Wars. Star, Star Wars fine. gets me going.
2: It's fine. <laughs> yeah, I just think quite a lot of the dialogue has been kind of wonky. Pacing has been a little off, and the plot holes and particularly the MacGuffins suddenly you know, oh, swords are important. Missed appearing from nowhere with no explanation. It's kind of frustrating. There are some wonderful moments that I have really enjoyed feeling like I'm on board the Dawn Treader. Uh, but oh, yeah, no, there's, there's some pain here as well.
0: How about you, Phil?
1: Yeah. So I will say that I, if it weren't for the fact that this was supposed to be an adaptation of the book, I rather enjoyed the film. I thought that Maybe this is because I saw the BBC version shortly before, a week or two before. So I was dreading prepping for this podcast because I thought, I don't...
0: Because he doesn't like Matt and David. He was like, oh, we got to talk to them. (laughs) I was looking forward to that part. I was like, I just don't
1: want to watch the movie beforehand. And Daniel had kind of said a few things that made me think that this wasn't going to be very good. But I was surprised at how good it was compared to what I was expecting. Um, But that doesn't change the fact that some of the things they change just don't make a ton of sense. And now that um, David has pointed out a few more, it really it really doesn't make a lot of sense um, the more I think about it. So I did enjoy it, but um, I look forward to, let's say I look forward to how Netflix um, is gonna do it.
2: So it's basically you're saying that the secret to happiness is to have low expectations and not to listen to anything I say. <laughs> Ign-
1: ignorance is bliss. The secret to marriage. <laughs> It's
0: to not listen to anything
2: David said.
0: <laughs> yes, I think
2: Marie would probably agree with that one. Yeah.
0: <laughs> the secret to be I... married to David Bates. Yeah, there you go. I th- I think for me, I don't think I made this analogy uh, last time we talked about this, but the this movie is, uh, to keep talking more about Star Wars, is the opposite of the prequels for me, where I think... Um, I actually quite enjoy the execution of this movie, but I really dislike a lot of the main ideas, especially the ideas that they have changed, making this into this, we've got to save the whole world, there's some green mist, and just taking away from the adventure and the discovery of the book, which which I would juxtapose with the prequels, which I would say have some really great, interesting, unique ideas, and just very, very flawed in their execution. So it's the opposite where, you know, I, just, I really just think they they missed some pretty big fundamental aspects of this book uh, in adapting it. No pun intended. Yeah.
2: Daniel, would you say this was a missed opportunity? (laughs) It was uh,
0: M-I-S-T opportunity. That's
3: right. (laughs) David Bates. Mm, Cringeworthy.
0: All right. So let's go ahead. And now that we kind of know where we stand, let's go right back into uh, the story. And we have a really interesting place to pick up here. So we ended as the Dawn Treader has made it through the Tempest. And now it is... Um, landing at an island that is Goldwater, Deathwater, and Dragon Island all rolled up into one. Uh, So there's already been a shift in the narrative structure here where we've gone out of order. We already visited the Duffers uh, back in the last episode, and we've seen The Magician's Book, and now we're just getting to Dragon Island, which is now combined with Goldwater and Deathwater Island. Did y'all like putting all of this together? Do you think it makes sense, or was this something we should have dragged out a little bit longer? I'm gonna let David take this one first. <laughs> uh,
2: I was actually mostly okay with it. I, it's a movie; they're not going to be able to have time for lots of different islands with different characters, so I was actually fine with them merging them a little bit.
3: I was fine with them merging. I did not like the reordering of. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't love the Duffers happening beforehand. It really confused me, threw me off. But the merging, I was fine with that as well. Although I will say I did not love the scene. I didn't like how it wasn't as much of a cave for Eustace with the dragon side of things. It was just this big treasure pit, maybe if you want to call it that. I I envisioned that extremely differently in my head.
0: Yeah, so you know you're right. They get to this volcanic island, which I thought that was really neat looking. That that they they had some different differences in the settings of the of the various islands and the all of the gold water and slash death water stuff is occurring at the same time that Eustace has gone on. It's like this weird volcanic valley. Is that, I mean, that's probably the best way to describe it. It's, yeah, it's not really a cave, but he still moves on, you know, puts on the bracelet um, at the same time that they're exploring this cavern. This scene was really interesting uh, as Caspian and Edmund fought, you know, over the gold and the, the discovery of, wait, that's not a statue, that's an actual person this is where it takes me out of it a little bit with Ben Barnes's age, because he's fighting with Edmund over who's the real king. And there's like a 10 year difference between the two of them. It's like, dude, just, just call seniority. You're fine, man. <laughs> you <know? laughs>
2: Punch them. There's only one of us that shaves.
0: Yes. <laughs> Easy now, David. Yeah, I thought I don't shave.
2: Mm. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I didn't like that. It, there was absolutely no puzzle. They work it out almost immediately. They know it's Restamar, And also they're not in the slightest bit sad in the book. It's quite a, a horrific moment when they've realized what had happened to this man. Uh, whereas in the movie, it's like, okay, we've got to get a sword. <laughs> yes. Yeah, where's, where's the
0: sword? <laughs> uh, it's it's at he died. Where's the sword.
2: And they get to pick up the sword and it doesn't change to gold because it's magic. It's, it's what I said in, in the previous episode, you know, when in doubt magic just solves everything.
0: Magic answers all, uh, all your questions.
2: And also, as I said in the previous episode, the mist is blamed for everything. So the, the fight that they have we're led to believe by the mist appearing that it's the mist that is influencing them rather than it's a, a just normal character dynamics of, uh, that they have to work out.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which is, uh, again, a, a, an issue that I think these filmmakers missed here because again, going back to the, there's not like a character journey for most of these characters. It's mostly just defeating the mist and any bad things that occur were defeating the mist. And when Phil and I read through this, um, you know, one chapter at a time, we really saw these little episodes pop up that would focus on one character at a time. So Caspian is really the the main focus on uh, on the Lone Islands. We see Lucy at the magician's house. This is kind of a big moment for Edmund to shine here on uh, on Deathwater Island. And then we actually have Eustace on Dragon Island and each each one of those characters really gets to shine in those adventures on the various islands. And and here none of those character arcs really happen. It's just, oh, we just have to defeat the mist. We just have to overcome the mist. It's not, we have to overcome ourselves. And I, I wonder if that's taking away of some of the, the Christian elements of this book. That there, It's like, no, the, the, the issue is, is the sin within, right? Instead of this you know, thing on the outside. Obviously there is an enemy, but there seems to be very little occurring in the hearts of our characters.
3: Wow, that was, that, I didn't even think of it. That was really, I agree completely. I didn't. I didn't think of that in the moment when I was watching the movie.
2: And also, noticeably, no Aslan. It's not the appearance of Aslan that brings them to their senses. It's Lucy jumping in between two squabbling boys.
0: Yeah, I, that's true. I didn't even think about how little. And I think one of the things that hurts Phil and I is that we watched the BBC right before we watched this. And you're right, Aslan shows up in the BBC version, but not in this. It's just Lucy, you know, and who also, as as we're reading and I think it's chapter, uh, I think it's chapter eight in the book that she herself is even struggling a little bit as well, too, there. And you're right, just kind of having her take on the Aslan role. When Aslan is already in a, a pretty reduced role, I, I call this more of his, like, Esther role here in this, uh, <laughs> in this movie, in this book. And so we, it's, it's a bummer that he doesn't get to intervene himself. So the, all of our characters, they do make it out. They now have this sword. And concurrently with this, you have Eustace's reveal that he is the dragon. He he kind of is flying around uh, the ship, and then he picks up. Um, who is it that he picks up? I've already forgotten. Is it um, Edmund? It's Edmund. And then I loved this reveal. This was really fun. And then he flies him over where he has uh, burned with his you know his fire breathing. I am Eustace into the ground, which I thought that was a really fun reveal.
2: I really liked it as well. It I. It's the sort of thing that I thought I might not like. It's, well, that's not like it is in the book. It's a bit over the top, but no, I, I really enjoyed it. Although you'll notice that the dragon does make a pointless trip to the boat. So when the dragon first appears, it, it flies out to the boat and they all uh, start shooting arrows at it, Reapcheap stabs it. It then goes back. It then goes and picks up Edmund. It then flies back out to the ship just to do a loop and then takes him back to the island <laughs> to show him his message. You
0: got to get that cool shot in there with the boat, man. <laughs> <laughs>
2: exactly i didn't
0: love how they in the book
3: eustace as the dragon just came very much shoulders forward head down feeling pretty defeated trying to to reveal that he's saddened and he's not a bad the dragon is not a bad thing he's not bad as a dragon and in the movie it tries to play this beginning part where you don't know and that he might actually be terrible and awful and I personally didn't actually like that as much. I liked the way he did it in the book in a much more humble type manner.
2: It's Hollywood, man. I know.
0: <laughs> and and I do, th- yeah, I do think it works for the character in the book. But, and in, in, so in the BBC version, they follow pretty much word for word uh, the book. And the scene, I feel like falls pretty flat with watching this uh, animatronic dragon try to like, you know, like nod <laughs> his head. Like, no, or yes. and And, it, and maybe it's just the special effects at the time. But it doesn't work the same way as this kind of dragon with his tail between his legs showing up um, in humility. It's more just like, what, what is happening here? Because you don't have Lewis narrating uh, what's occurring in Eustace's head. And so that's the part that's difficult. And, and so I, I didn't mind it. I'll have to watch the BBC now.
2: Oh, don't worry, dude. I've got it scheduled. We're going <laughs> You need you need to be punished <laughs> by experiencing my childhood. Cause I watched these when they came out live on TV. Oof.
1: I was, I was, so David, I've been meaning to ask you this. I'm glad we get to do it on the show. What, what is your exposure to the BBC version? Because for me, I watched it on
2: VHS from the church library. I watched them on TV as they were being released. Wow. On the telly. Yep. I am that old. It's <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, but back to things that did and didn't work. The thing I didn't like was when Eustace comes into the valley with all of the treasure, he pushes a skeleton out of the way, <laughs> Lord Octesian, uh, just to get his bracelet. Why? It, 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 it seemed too callous even for Eustace, and he's in a valley of treasure. I'm going to take the treasure that doesn't require me to touch a dead body. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and, and even for him too, this whole theme throughout the book is that Eustace hasn't read the right books and is therefore he's not uh, brave he's a coward about everything so it actually doesn't make sense that he would go near a skeleton right and he has a hygiene award <laughs> that's
2: true he wouldn't want to do that thank you thank you Phil Phil you're you're on my team now <laughs> i'm i'm glad you're here thank you
1: now that i see all the little details <laughs> i can't not see that
0: <laughs> you've changed my mind so at, after all these adventures on this particular island before they leave there is the stargazing that occurs. And I think this is uh, a really great scene between mm-hmm. um, both Eustace as a dragon, who, who obviously can't talk and reap a cheap. And I think reap is, is fine in this movie. I, I don't think he shines the same way he does in the book. And this is one of the scenes. that's a huge standout. that reminds us why we love this character so much.
3: I agree. I, I loved this scene. Actually, this is one up there with the Lucy one of, I felt it nailed what was communicated in the book very well. The tenderness. Because in the book, if you remember, there was animosity. I thought it was more well played out in the book than in the movie between Reaper Cheap and Eustace. Because as we talked about in the last part, it was over the orange and it was more him trying to help him. So it was more of like a friendly fight, except in the book, it was not quite as friendly. And here they did a really good job with just communicating that the beauty of that relationship and really someone going to. Someone, meaning like Cheap, going to Eustace, and it's in a point where Eustace doesn't deserve a lot of kindness and mercy. In mm-hmm. he showed Rebacheap showed a ton of grace. So you can have this person that can be both about justice. I think this is what I really liked about justice and honor and integrity, but then at the same time, an incredible amount of grace. And so much today, you'll see, even in the the divides within a church of more liberal or conservative, like justice versus mercy, and they're, they're at each other's throat. And if you have more justice, you have less mercy. And if you have more mercy, you have less justice. Like, Reepicheep showed both. And, and I, I loved this scene of just the mercy and the grace of him.
2: Did you guys notice that you could see Aslan in the stars?
0: No. No, I didn't know that.
2: Yeah. Go back, take a look. You can see the lion in there.
0: Oh, that's cool. No, I was too busy looking at the, uh, the blue star to notice Aslan up there. <laughs>
2: Well, before we get to the blue star, I I have two more things I have to say I couldn't stand. No, go for it, please. The bracelet was removed so easily.
0: Yes, (laughs) that is true. That got me, David. Dumb. Got me.
2: And also the bracelet had somehow grown with Eustace.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem super painful on him.
2: Because you see Lucy walking away and it's this massive thing. And also Lucy has this conversation with Gale when they're looking up at the stars. And... Aslan is mentioned with zero explanation and Gale seems to know who he is. It's like, okay.
0: (laughs) Do you think that that could be, so we don't know much about uh, Gale and Rince's family on the Lone Islands, but, and there seems to be a lot of unjust things occurring there, especially with slavery. But I mean, could it be that they're, you know, a family who is loyal to Aslan or something that, that that is something they're kind of maybe in a place that maybe they're even persecuted for, for, you know, I'm I'm getting a little too close to real world stuff, but, you know, I, I didn't make, to me, I was fine being, oh, she knows all about Aslan. Maybe they all don't, or, you know, Gumpus didn't, but she could.
2: Well, I just look back at the events of Prince Caspian, where all knowledge of Aslan and the old Narnians was basically obliterated by the Telmarines. Yeah,
0: you're right. That's true. And I see, I was forgetting that the Lone Islands doesn't know about this yet, right? So people could yeah. be talking about Aslan back, you know, around, uh, Baruna, or around Care—you know, actually, obviously not Care Paravel, but around uh, the land of Narnia. But you're right; you're totally right that ha- that news hasn't made it to the Lone Islands.
2: And yet they meet a crew that is populated at least by a Minotaur and a fawn.
0: <laughs> and no one freaks out.
2: Yeah, yeah. There need to be more people like Eustace just fainting. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the people in the Lone Islands, like, what is this about? <laughs> you know.
0: <laughs> Which, by the way, um, there aren't any. Narnian creatures in the book on the Dawn Treader. Isn't it only populated by by human well not real humans, but by yeah, I mean there still are humans, just not from our
2: world. As far as I know, yeah. Except obviously except for Reaper Cheap, but I I don't think any are particularly called out apart yeah. from Reaper Cheap, yeah.
0: I, I I didn't mind that addition of more. I would be fine with like a you know a fawn no. in there or something else. And you know, that's fine with me.
2: Particularly a fawn that can do somersaults and ninja <laughs> Exactly. That's cool.
0: Well well let's let's move on. Um with, with the Dawn Treader, as they begin following the blue star, they get a, uh, a warning from a water nymph, uh, you know, kind of, it's pretty ominous <laughs> as it looks up at mm. Lucy. And they also run out of wind, not they don't run out, but there's no wind. And so they're not able to move forward. And that is when we get the big heroic moment of Eustace uh, wrapping his tail around the ship and pulling it forward uh, with his brute strength.
2: Fun, but dumb. And an easy resolution, but I'm okay with it.
3: <laughs> that wasn't in, in the book, right? That was not in the book.
0: No, they no. You, they don't leave the island in the book uh, with a dragon. I mean, yeah. all of Eustace's uh, big arc there occurs completely on the island in the course of three chapters. And by the time they leave, he's a boy again.
2: And it's because he was a burden, because they couldn't leave with him, mm-hmm. because they don't know when they're next going to be reaching land. How are they going to feed him all of the all of these yeah. things are the things that actually help in Eustace's transformation as he starts to realize what a pest he's become mm. even before he became a dragon.
3: they missed that a little
0: bit you know the the two things that happen as with Eustace as a dragon is that he is um the I mean the big one is this transformation where Aslan comes and he he turns him back into a human through removing those scales and all the pain that that takes and it's such a beautiful picture, but there's a more subtle thing like you just said david where where eustace is realizing oh my goodness i am a terrible pest like and it it takes him to actually be a giant dragon to realize how much he is hindering the crew and and to also see their kindness towards him they're not going to leave him here he's been nothing but miserable the whole time and yet they are literally pausing their search for the seven lords so that uh they don't leave him here and abandon him and it's those two things that happen together that change his character. And it seems like the filmmakers only focused on, that, which is a beautiful scene, but only focused on um, the transformation back into a human, which does happen. It's a really big deal. I mean, they move it to the climax of the film. So they obviously recognized it was important, but they seem to miss the more subtle elements of the transformation as well.
1: I think this is an issue that happens when you have a story that's so well-constructed that if you remove one piece or put it somewhere else, a lot of other things fall with it. And so they tried to piece it back together here, and it's an entertaining movie, but it certainly is not what Lewis had in mind for a lot of this stuff.
2: I think it could have possibly have worked, though. Uh, I think keeping Eustas as a dragon longer, and if we are going to head in the direction that this movie was going into, I, I thought that was OK. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could have had that, his transformation right at the end. But it needed to be, it needed to be earned a little bit more.
1: I'm also curious what motivated that decision to have him remain a dragon. I wondered if it was a budget thing where if they're going to put all the work into making a dragon and uh, mod- like model it and get the crew for that and everything.
2: I wondered if they wanted well, to use wasn't it. Wasn't Game of Thrones really big around this time? Every good show has to have some dragons. Right. They're
1: like, oh, we got a dragon. Let's put it in a few more scenes.
3: Remind me the scene with the the sea creature. In the book he was already undragoned, correct?
0: Yeah, that happens in in two narrow escapes. And I think it is after he's already been undragoned and they just push off the tail of the sea serpent as opposed to this weird looking thing that's, you know, the climax of the movie.
3: I wonder if they're trying... Because he helped with that. I wonder if they were trying to show... Maybe they thought it was unrealistic that this ship would somehow get away from this huge serpent without the help of a dragon. <laughs>
2: And it was Eustace's first brave act mm-hmm. as a boy. He attacks the serpent with Caspian's second best sword, I think.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, it seems to me, and I think it's fine to talk about it here, although I think we should look back at the end and maybe bring it back up. But I, I do wonder if this book was always doomed to fail because, from, from an adaptation perspective because of the structure of this book. You know, I, I think one of the things that the writers, and by the way, uh, I, we mentioned that this, that we were kind of doing uh, an Avengers thing here by bringing together our two podcasts. The guys who wrote this movie, y'all, wrote uh, Infinity War and Endgame. What? <laughs> I'm not joking. They wrote, they wrote uh, all three. Sorry, I, I, don't, I know I'm kind of getting this off course here. We talked about you already being Chris Evans. I'm not joking. They wrote The First <laughs> Avenger, The Winter Soldier, Civil War, Infinity War, and Endgame.
3: Mm, that's
0: oh my goodness isn't that weird
3: that's just affirmation <laughs> that my statement was correct earlier <laughs>
0: exactly sorry i know that's a little off topic but
3: <laughs> i'll take it
0: yeah so obviously here's the thing uh, those two guys christopher marcus and Stephen mcfeely they're talented writers okay i mean they're they've written good movies it's not like they are not uh talented writers and oh they just can't write a good movie they have clearly shown that they can write good films um The issue for me is that maybe it's just that this book, because of the way its arcs work and the narrative structure of it, it just doesn't work as a film. And that's why they have to drag out Eustace's transformation, because one of the things I brought up um, as we went through this whole last season was that, you know, Eustace, after he um, transforms back into a human and has he's not fully rid of all of uh, his negative qualities, but he's mostly, you know, changed. Uh, he really doesn't appear much more than a line in about each chapter. And I think it's, it, it's, a testament to his character, how much we remember him from this book when really he plays a, a very limited role after chapter seven. And so I wonder if the filmmakers didn't want that to happen because it might feel weird in a movie. And so they have to, they have to really drag out uh, his character arc.
2: I think you're right. And I think that there are going to have to be some quite major pace changes to turn this into a movie, uh, and, and like I said, I actually think this could have worked. I just don't think we had enough earlier on to see Eustace's transformation beginning, so that then at the end when he does transform, that we feel like there's been a real payoff.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, speaking of payoffs, let's go ahead and move into uh, ramping up into the climax of this this movie. So the Dawn Treader it it lands on Ramandu's island and pretty quickly the whole crew makes it to Aslan's table. Um we spent a lot of time talking about Aslan's table and uh, we talked a lot about different Lewis scholars who who looked at this as the the Eucharist of uh the, of Narnia is what a lot of people looked at in here. I didn't feel like any of that translated to it, which is one of my favorite parts of the book, which I was a little bummed about. And instead, the whole focus is on putting these swords at the table and lighting everything's up, everything up, you know, into a big blue light. What did you all think about this?
2: Well, I wanted to ask people, do you notice that we go to Ramandu's island? And who do we never meet through the entirety of the movie? That's right. <laughs> Ramandu. <laughs> Call it something else if you're going to do that. Weird. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it, it was it was a little strange. And apparently there are orcs on that island because their swords glow blue. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. And also just once again, they just didn't care about the lords. It was all about getting their swords.
3: Yeah, I'll say it felt rushed. I felt it could have been developed more. I felt I, it could have been more of a message there. It just didn't play as much of a prominence. It didn't stick out to me as much in the movie as it did in the book
0: yeah it felt more instead of being kind of the the climax of the journey it's that it felt like oh it's just this kind of uh stepping stone to get mm-hmm. to the real climax which is a big battle and i and i think that's not what lewis was going for we, the the really interesting thing about the don treader uh, as a book is that this climax uh, at uh, ramondus island happens with like 3 chapters to go you know mm-hmm. and then the rest of it is just literally smooth sailing to the east
3: yeah i guess uh, you just gotta, I guess we have to cut him a little slack. I'm wondering if it's just a movie has to end on the climax. <laughs> and they were just like, we can't do this.
2: <laughs> That's fine. It's just that this island doesn't really give us a whole lot apart from we've got three more swords and they have to apparently come back here. And we have an exposition dump by Ramandu's daughter, who is now apparently a shape shifting star. Uh, and was it just me? Or was that the glow around her just kind of overkill? She kind of reminded me of the Blue Fairy.
0: It was a little much. I like I like that she's given a name so we finally have something to call her other than uh Ramindu's daughter which is just it's a long thing to say. But uh she's given the name okay. Lillian Dill. Um and there's a little bit of conversation between her and Caspian which I, I thought that part worked out rather well. Um but for the most part she is just uh, a means for the plot to move forward instead of an actual character.
1: How about when she turns into a glowing ball and then ascends into the sky? Best scene in the
2: movie. <laughs> Hands down. Uh, I actually heard that uh, Lilian Dill was actually a name given to her by Douglas Gresham. Oh, oh really? that's
0: cool. Do you know any of you know, the etymology of, of why he chose this word or what it, what it means or just it sounded
2: cool? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Uh, I mean, it, it sounds very Tolkien-esque. It does, doesn't it? Oh, and there was also another plot change at this, at this point because the reason that the lords are asleep isn't because they touched the stone knife, but because they threatened violence, which is like I think either don't include the stone knife at the table and just run with that, or have them touch the knife. It just seemed like an odd thing to have the knife there, and 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 then actually have it have nothing to do with any of the plot. Yeah,
1: and just stick with the they touch the
2: knife part. That would have been the simpler route.
0: So then, uh, the Don Treader leaves ramandu's island and this is where uh we head to the dark island and uh it does get very dark <laughs> here <laughs> this is uh to me this is where the movie just really falls apart um all of the the plot issues we've had that have kind of been more in the background really come to the fore, forefront here and, and I, I think the the movie struggles here so at the dawn trader it sails to the dark island uh, and the first part, I think, actually goes really well. They sail into the island. Caspian gives a pretty great speech. And we, we hear the Lord Roop as the green mist is kind of uh, creeping along around the Dawn Treader. And it is very frightening, his, his screaming out for them. And you get this this sense that he is just not well, you know, both mentally and physically. And all of that, I think the, the tension there is ramped up really well. And I like that.
2: I liked the repetition of the Fanania. Because that, that cry was in each of the movies. Mm-hmm. I actually thought his speech was kind of dull, but that, that was just me. He also seems to think that they can actually save the people that the mist has taken. Uh, I would have just assumed they were all dead at this point. Uh, one thing that I, I did like, the fact that they did it. But again, I think the execution wasn't right. Because Lucy's arc in this movie has all been about accepting who you are. Mm-hmm. And it's around this time that Gail says, I, when I grow up, I want to be just like you. And she says, no, no, when you grow up, you should be just like you. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it was just the placement of that conversation. It, it, I, I, I completely missed it on the first viewing.
0: So wait, you were saying you didn't like that, that conversation between the two of them?
2: I completely missed it mm-hmm. when I was first there. Yes, so did I. Uh, I, I like when I went to watch it a second time, I realized what the filmmakers were doing. They were trying to complete Lucy's arc. She has now learned her lesson after trying the spell, and she realizes that she shouldn't waste her time wishing to be somebody else. She should just be who she is. Mm -hmm. And she's now passing that wisdom on to a younger generation. So I liked that, but it just seemed like an odd place to put it.
3: I do have to say the more we go through this, uh, Dan, you're pointing out of the importance of discovery is just becoming more and more transparent to me. The discovery of um, of Caspian and his role, the discovery of Lucy. I mean, the discovery in all of this is is really apparent.
0: Yeah, and I think one of the the things I really like about the book and its uh, exploration of discovery, you know, from a thematic standpoint, is is that it matches a lot of our. You know our faith journey too. I mean, I think about so much of you know. I want it to be you know. I'm not that old at all, but you know, so far in my life, it's not like there's these this one long arc of oh, this is exactly me. It's not like little little things where the Lord is teaching me this for this season, and then it's a new thing. But I still have that other thing in the back. I still have to work on, and then it's. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the process of sanctification, and so um, I, I think Lewis does that really well. I don't know if that's exactly what he was aiming for, but that resonates with me um because it's it's kind of like highs and lows and some um some parts are more exciting than others and some you know and in, instead as the movie ad- adapts it it tries to make it this one big huge thing and that's just not the feeling i got from from the book when i read it personally yep i agree completely so yeah we got to talk about this battle <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah so the so the sea serpent appears in the green mist. And we, the way that it works is that we learn that all of our dreams come true, which this matches up with chapter 12, the dark island in the book. Um, except that Edmund, it's all his fault. He, he dreams of a sea serpent and then it, uh, it appears which I really didn't like because it kind of puts, you know, some of this on like, dude, come on, man. Like, obviously you couldn't really help it, but you, I mean, everyone that dies here, that's kind of blood on your hands, you know? Like, why didn't you think up like a pretty unicorn or something that just wasn't going to kill everybody?
2: Um, Well, did anybody else get a really strong Ghostbusters vibe from that scene?
3: I've never seen Ghostbusters.
2: Oh, my goodness. I haven't
3: either while
1: while we're admitting stuff.
0: Oh, my, yes, I have... I have seen Ghostbusters. <laughs>
2: did you see Ghostbusters or did you see the Rose Byrne version? Uh,
0: I have not seen the new one. I've seen Ghostbusters 1 and 2 from the 80s.
2: Okay. So in that, the big baddie will choose the form of what somebody is thinking. Mm-hmm. And it ends up being Ray thinking about the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Yep. It was exactly the same thing. Oh, great.
3: Now I don't have to watch it anymore. <laughs> Thanks. Oh, you, sh- you totally should, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm kidding. It's great. To. It's
2: a great movie.
0: But yeah, and I just thought that was, um, I don't know, it th- there's an interesting thing that could be happening there that that is somewhat intriguing to me, which is that the thing that they are battling is coming from within themselves. And I think there's some really interesting mm-hmm. ideas to explore there. The movie doesn't choose to explore any of those. Instead, it just becomes a big <laughs> fight scene. But uh, there's there's a part of am like, oh my gosh, that's actually, let's explore this, right? L- let's even look at Edmund from the perspective of the last three films, where it really, most of the bad things that happen uh, in the first movie are because of him. He then in, in the second movie is figuring out who he is now that, you know, he has been redeemed through the blood of Aslan and is trying to figure out what is it like with him and Peter. And he's competing with th- with him. And then here in this movie, he's really come into this hero role. Right. And there's an interesting idea to play with. And the last big thing they have to defeat is something that comes from within Edmund. And, and yet it's just a big fight.
2: You know, it was kind of wasted. And speaking of wasted, the albatross, when Lucy prays, you know, Aslan, if you ever loved us, please help us now. Just the albatross appears and that's it. Nothing. No courage, dear heart. No like Just, ugh, why bother?
0: <laughs> I, I have to imagine that if you have not read the book, you're like, wait, why did they put that in there? <laughs> that doesn't make any <laughs> sense. Maybe the director just really liked an albatross. I was like, let's throw that in there. It, it's, it's very unclear what's happening in, in that moment if you have not read the book. So this fight continues between the Sea Serpent and uh, the crew of the Dawn Treader. They try to smash the serpent uh, against the rock, and Eustace uh, jumps into the fight, and he is thrown out out of the darkness uh, in this fight to an island. And it is unclear to me if this island is literal or figurative. Like, I don't know if he's actually in a physical place. You've been watching too much Lost.
2: (laughs) Well, it's got mist's Island. It's basically lost
0: the uh I mean, do you guys think this is an island that is just nearby the Dark island in Raymandes Island, or is this somewhere like it's just it's just it doesn't feel like it's in the same place
3: I interpret it as more metaphorical or yeah. kind of a stand aside, not meant to be literal
2: I just thought it was a sandbar that was somewhere nearby, okay, but I'm happy either way, yeah.
1: Far, far enough away that it's not in the in the mist or in the darkness itself.
0: Well, well, let, let's talk about it more before we go back to the uh, the big fight on the Dark Island, because um, this is probably, the, I would say, one of the most uh, pivotal scenes of the book. Is the undragoning of Eustace, and it's done very differently here um, for lots of different reasons. It's in a different place in the book. It is kind of hard to show a dragon rip the scales off, um, and even the way that it's presented in the book. Eustace um, is telling the story to Edmund a day after it occurs, and we're actually now seeing it in the movie in real time. How did y'all think this scene was handled?
3: So I love the scene itself, meaning just in general book movie, that concept of undragoning. That was, I heard of that, learned of that, knew of that before I read the book, because it was brought up, I believe, in one of the talks at North Carolina. And that concept itself of undragoning their false self, the monstrous parts that you've put on... I, I absolutely love it. And so I was a little disappointed with the scene itself. I thought it conveyed that idea well, but I, I for one, appreciated the book how it showed Eustace struggling longer. I just thought it showed him do a few couple little scratches, and then Aslan comes in to save the day, where in the book you get the sense that he's actually scratching and succeeding to some degree, and then it comes back. And then he's succeeding a little bit, then it comes back, which seems to be more fitting of our journey with sin. It's like, I'm going to white knuckle this. And honestly, Mm -hmm. you get a little bit of the way, and then you realize you can't do it on your own. But it's not that quick of a realization, because you have to go down the white knuckling path first to overcome sin, temptation, vice, before you realize, you put your hands up and say, I can't do it. I need God's grace. And so I didn't think it conveyed that very well. And I also didn't like how Aslan was scratching the sand and magically going over.
2: I would just add that I think it then got even worse when Eustace then went through the standard Disney transformation. It was like something out of Beauty and the Beast (laughs) where he then flies up into the sky and there's lots of pixie dust around him and yeah, he's then changed. One thing I will say, I really liked the way the scene began with Eustace opening up his eye and we see the reflection of Aslan there. That was a cool shot. That was was great. The rest of it was just boring.
1: I think there are two things that probably younger audiences find exciting and it's transformations with like a a flame or mist or explosion type thing. And the other one is just like a climactic battle. And I loved them when I was younger, but once you see them over and over again, you kind of don't enjoy them as much. And I feel like this is yet another movie that kind of falls victim to that. They have to add a climactic battle and they have to have a transformation look like this. And this could have been done so many ways. And I would have loved to see a version a little more true to the book, but with updated special effects compared to the BBC.
2: I love the BBC version, personally. Yeah, I like it a lot, too. <laughs> Doesn't need to be improved. <laughs>
0: the, uh,
2: uh,
0: yeah, I, I'm also not a, not a huge fan of this scene. And I, I think it just, um, I don't know. Yeah, it, it just misses the mark in so many ways. So I don't need to get into it because you guys have already said it. Uh, but it is still, there's some really interesting visuals that are occurring, um, and I still like it uh, when I compare it to what we're about to go back to, which is, uh, <laughs> which is the White Witch uh, and the <sighs> the Sea Serpent. So let's go back to Dragon Island, where the crew of the Dawn Treader is fighting uh, the Sea Serpent. Dark Island. Oh, yeah, that's what I meant. Uh, they're on the Dark Island, where they're fighting, uh, and the Sea Serpent is there, which, uh, as they continue to fight... There's a really interesting image where it kind of um, comes up like a cobra would and it like unravels these like weird legs inside of it, which is absolutely terrifying. That is easily the scariest (laughs) thing we've ever seen in Narnia. And I can't imagine like a seven or eight year old who's watching this movie is going to be a fan of that. Uh, But I thought that was an interesting visual amidst some other stuff I really don't like. But it's here that uh, the White Witch returns. She's well, she's now green. She's the green mist uh witch here and she's here to tempt Edmund. And I feel like this is of many of the decisions made. This one might be the most controversial. She comes back and she's trying to tempt Esmond, uh, Esmond, I'm trying to <laughs> combine them <names. laughs> Hey, it wouldn't be a lamppost listener if I didn't mispronounce someone's name. Uh, it's so she's trying to tempt Edmund to come back to her. And Tilda Swinton's a phenomenal actress. I mean, she always does well in this role. I don't, I, I love her in this role um, but in my opinion, this just feels so inappropriate for this movie. And this—it's like the 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 producers of the movie couldn't couldn't let her go after the first movie.
2: It kind of reminds me of the movie Dracula, Dead and Loving It, which is a spoof. And uh, they're trying to kill this vampire, and each time they stab it through the heart, all this blood appears, and it's says she's nearly dead. She's nearly she's dead enough. Uh, I I I didn't even understand what she was trying to tempt him to. If he said, okay, sure, I'm on board. What, what difference does that make to anything?
1: Yeah, she probably would have said, well, I'd, I wasn't expecting that.
2: Um, <laughs> I can't come back. <laughs> it wasn't a temptation. I think it would have been so much better if it had been about them seeing their nightmares and this giving them missed strength. Mm-hmm. And we see the serpent being formed as the crew members become more and more fearful. Then they each have their own individual battle with their own like, personal demons. And then we start seeing the sea serpent weakened. And sure, then you can throw in some magic swords if you really insist. <laughs> I just didn't get the point. I didn't understand why she was tempting him. To what What difference would that have made?
0: Yeah, it feels like she's included just so they can put her on the poster of the film. You know, I know that <laughs> sounds very cynical, but I mean, it's, she's all over a lot of the marketing for this movie. And she appears in what maybe three minutes of it, and so I I think it's a hey, Tilda Swinton is a is a a famous actress. Uh, She's probably uh, you know Liam Neeson and Simon Pegg are both behind voice roles. She's the most famous uh, actor in this movie, and so I think it's just putting a you know a face on a poster and stuff. It it doesn't seem like she plays uh, any kind of pivotal role here. And like you said, David, there is a story here. There there is um, some motivation that could be going on as Edmund sees you know his worst fear i mean maybe it even if you need to include her it's what edmund sees is not a sea serpent that's not his worst dream his worst dream is like his mistake of siding with the white witch you know when they first came to narnia and then if if you really have to include her you could still i'm not saying i want this but you could include her as the big bad at the end of this movie not that she's actually there but that it's as it's edmund's fear of her right that is that is bringing her back, but instead she's like just she. Is, it's unclear. Was she the miss the whole time? I, I'm actually not sure.
2: I actually think they were trying to set this up for the silver chair. And since we have two people here who haven't read that, I'm not going to say anything more. But I think that was what they had an eye to. I think aside from the fact of getting a little bit of star power and sticking her face on the posters, I think that's what they were trying to do. You,
0: that is such a great point, David. I had not thought about. Um, any of the characters from the next book. I can't say anything else besides that. Um, man, that's David. That's a phenomenal point. I I really think that you, you're onto something there.
1: So David, in um, the original Spider-Man, the first three that they made before they remade him, and then remade him again, and then remade him a, a fourth <laughs> time. Um, there are all these references to Mysterio, who later appeared in Marvel movies. But there mm-hmm. there are all these cameos. Um, by the guy who was going to play Mysterio in the fourth movie, and they kept doing it, and it doesn't make any sense because that movie never happened. And yep.
2: this seems to be pretty close to that. Exactly. We've ha- we sort of have a vestigial organ in this movie. I think it was for mm-hmm. a- another movie that never got made. Okay.
0: Well, well, the sea serpent is finally destroyed. Uh, the people return from the mist, and the, the climax is over. Any Any last thoughts here before we head on to... Uh, our final ce- our final couple of scenes. No, I cannot wait for these final scenes.
2: Okay, I'll keep my complaints short. <laughs> why does it, Peter's sword, why does it glow? It wasn't part of the other ones. Uh, the whole sky beam, dumb. Uh Lucy stating the obvious. The spell it's lifting. It's like, well, thank you. That's pretty helpful. <laughs> the people return. Why did the mist me- why did the mist need them in the first place? And why is Yusuf suddenly in the water by the ship? He, he was on Ramendu's Island a moment ago. And the thing that really irritated me is the children all take credit for it. It's because they think it's something that they did. It it had nothing to do with Aslan. Mm. And, and when they jump into the water and discover that the water's sweet and Aslan's country is right there, they say, well, we've come this far. (laughs) (laughs) This, this was what Reep heart longed for.
0: Yeah. It's, It's, it's really interesting. And I want to talk a little bit about what you mentioned with Aslan. I remember when the first two movies came out, um, as someone who was already familiar with the books, I know that some of the criticism that I read for it was a lot of people felt like, uh, Aslan was this kind of like deus ex machina at the end of it. Like, oh, he just saves the day and they just have this random character show up and he fixes everything. And it's usually something you want to avoid, um, in, in a narrative, right? But and it's like, no, actually, uh, if, if Aslan is a supposal of God, that's exactly what it is. That's how catastrophes work. And that's, you know, that's, it's all these kind of things. And I wonder if there is um, a thought by the filmmakers here to actually pull, I mean, already Aslan doesn't play a large role in this book, but to, uh, to pull Aslan kind of away from saving the day and letting the main characters save the day instead. I wonder if that was part of it. I, I mean, I don't know if that's a good, I don't think it's a good move, but I wonder if that's what they're thinking.
2: That makes sense. I think you're right.
0: All right. well, let's let's go to some happy stuff. I think uh, I, I have a sense that we might be a little bit more happy with uh, these last few scenes here. So um there is no we completely skip the the penultimate chapter of this book. Uh, there really is no sailing through the silver Sea. We don't see um, any of the sea people or anything. We go straight to um, the last chapter, which, uh, is a bummer for me because of that's that's my favorite chapter in the book, but also I feel like that would be the the weirdest chapter to try to adapt. And so I understand that. Um, but it is still wonderful to see all the lilies and you know, see them go through this silver sea.
3: I did enjoy the scene when Cheap gets in the water and realizes it's sweet. Mm-hmm.
0: And so pretty quickly, it's like after this climax has occurred, they they get into their small boats and they sail uh, to the edge of the world and interesting. Interestingly enough, Caspian goes with them, which is very uh, a pretty big part of that final chapter. That Caspian is not allowed to go with them because he has to stay, and he has a responsibility as king. But he does go with them here. Where did y'all were y'all okay with that choice of Caspian being allowed to go? I was
2: fine with it.
3: Wait, did I get the did I I might be mixing these two up. So didn't add, didn't Caspian in the movie go to the scene with the the big wave and the beach, but then was still was supposed to go back or no? Did he actually, he went forward?
0: I thought he went back. No, he, he still goes back, but in the book, he doesn't even get to go to that final island. It's just the children and, uh, and cheap. Remember Caspian, um, he kind of, uh, says, I'm going to stop being king. I'm going into Aslan's country. I'm, and, uh, you know, as, as people are asking, wait, are you, you know, are you not going to be king anymore? And he goes back into his cabin and he gets a talking to from Aslan who reminds him that his responsibility is to the kingdom of Narnia. It's not uh, like discovery only goes so far, but at the end of the day, he still has a responsibility and he can't just walk away from that responsibility. And then uh, in a kind of a funny way, he's reminded, oh yeah. And remember you have uh, Ramandu's daughters waiting for you too. And he's like, oh, okay. I think I might be all right.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. Oh, that was great. Classic man.
0: So, so let me hear your thoughts on this this final scene uh, with as Aslan comes and meets them at the world's end.
2: I love the reveal. I really liked seeing his shadow. Mm-hmm. I loved the beach. I loved the waves, and I loved the glimpse of Aslan's country. Oh, it feels so nice to say nice things about this movie again.
3: Again, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I and my favorite line of them all was the very. I wasn't the last line per se, but. When Aslan mentions, when Reaper Sheep gives his speech of how he was, this is what everything was made for, and Aslan says, my country's made for people with hearts like yours, or something like that. I mean, I was, I, that brought tears to my eyes, honestly. That probably made the most lasting impact on me of the entire movie and book, of it's about the heart of courage and adventure and striving for goodness, and it's not, because none of that was about the actions of Reaper Chief. Of course, his actions followed. Because if your heart is in that place, your actions are going to follow from that. But it's all about your heart's desire. In desiring, which is very Lewis-esque, very much of uh, uh, The Great Divorce. It's like, what is your heart's deepest desire? Is it to do the will of God? So I loved that. Mm.
2: And it was very convenient because there was a, a mouse-sized coracle right there by the wave.
3: Of course there is.
0: God. Yeah, Aslan put it there. <laughs> yeah
2: magic said so i i left this on burnt island but since you didn't actually land on that one i just brought it here
3: it's <laughs> called god of the gaps david how did it get <laughs> here god
2: the one thing i was quite impressed by is the fact that they didn't cut out the part where aslan says that he's in our world and that the kids came to this world to know him a little here so that they would know him better in our world I was thinking the exact
0: same thing, David. And I was like, maybe I'm just being really cynical and just, (laughs) but I really was, I was surprised that that made it in. I thought for sure that, you know, if you're going to cut, you know, they've cut, they've changed the book in so many ways, like, oh, they're going to take out that it's a pretty clear uh, religious reference, you know? And I didn't think it was going to make it. And I was, I loved that. And I think it really tied together. um, It gave, it gave a sense of, Finality to this third film, and obviously at this point they thought they were going to make another one. We even heard that from uh, from Douglas Gresham that there were plans for the fourth, Uh, but it actually works as the final chapter in a movie trilogy. To be like, hey, actually, let me tell you, everything you did here was because I exist back home. You know, and I I like that as an ending. It really worked.
3: Yeah, and that's a big Christian theme in general. Like so much of our journey in life, we've mentioned this, I believe, on the last one, but is getting to know God. And then as we get to know him, because Lewis talks about this with authenticity and learning about ourselves, we only will receive our authentic self once we go to God for his sake and his sake alone. And that's a process of learning about him, getting to know him. And in scripture, when it talks about knowing God, it uses a Hebrew word that is the same word used for when a man and a wife know each other intimately in a a sexual sense, like in a coming together, and so that knowing is a deep thing, and so I really like that here. I mean, we, we are called to know Christ, and I thought that I, I thought
0: they communicated that very well.
1: I think so too. That's a great point.
0: So then, you know, Reba cheap uh, flies. <laughs> <He's>, he 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 <laughs> rides. He rides. He actually. Here's the thing. He does fly in the BBC version. It's like a UFO like beams him <laughs> up. That's like the special effect. <laughs> and so that's that's what I was thinking of, but he he rides the wave to the to the crest of the wave, sails over, which is beautiful. and then uh the three uh our, our three humans return and it's a really well done scene. and actually, I really think all three of these movies have done the travel back to our world scenes very well. even uh Caspian's, which has like the Regina Specter song, and like it's you know, Susan's fawning over Caspian, which I, I don't love. It's still done really well. And I, I, they have this sense of melancholy, of being sad of leaving Narnia, but knowing that this isn't your home to begin with. They, you, they always knew they had to eventually go back. And the movies all capture that feeling very, very well.
2: It was the point in this movie when they did some real visual storytelling in the looks on the faces of each of the actors as to how Eustace handles the picture of the Narnian boat with much more reverence. It was, if they could have done more of that throughout the movie, show, don't tell. Don't just tell us how you're feeling. Actually, actually, let us see it, set up the scene uh, so that we feel what the characters feel.
1: Yeah. I'd, I'm looking at um, some screen caps from that scene and I see exactly what you're talking about. Just the way he looks at the picture for a few moments and then places it back on the wall with much more care, like you were saying. And also the way Lucy looks at it one more time. And you can just read so much into the way she's looking at the picture. And then she kind of leaves and the picture goes out of view. And then the door closes. It's just very well done.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: And we're also treated to Yusas' mother calling up the stairs to tell him that Jill Pole has dropped in for a visit. Which, if you've read the next book, that raises some more questions. But it was cute, so... I'm gonna give it, I'm going to let it slide.
0: Yeah, it doesn't quite make sense, but it's it's nice. It's nice to remember, hey, there's a story that that this story does continue. I, I enjoyed that too. Mm. Phil does not know what we're talking about, but that's okay. I don't <laughs> Don't worry, neither does Matt. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then uh so then the movie obviously wraps up, and we get some really beautiful credits. A lot of Pauline Baines' illustrations are included here in the credits. She had actually uh, passed away prior to uh the filming of this movie and so they included a lot of of, of her illustrations there which i loved i it reminded me of uh the illustrations at the very end of the return of the king i don't know if you've ever watched those through but they have like each character and stuff i i love a good uh credits with lots of uh, things to read besides
2: words <laughs> as well as a bit of rocking carrie underwood
0: yeah wait is that is that who it is
2: yeah there's a place for us that's the song that's playing
0: oh that's the, okay. I'm not super familiar with the soundtrack, although actually, uh, like the songs that are in it. But these we haven't talked at all about this. But um, the soundtrack in this movie, I really, really
2: enjoy. Yeah, I'd agree. I think actually, the soundtrack for all of the Narnian movies has been pretty solid.
0: And I and I think this could have been a place where we could have seen a dip in the quality because we moved, uh, we switched uh, composers, and David Arnold composed. Uh, this movie and I think he does a great job including a lot of the the themes from the first two but then he introduces a new theme for the Don Treader uh, which I really enjoy he even includes like a little bit of percussion and a snare drum in the at the end of it which just feels kind of like this sense of discovery with this there's this, is this like slight like danger in the background so overall the, I thought the music this is probably actually my favorite soundtrack of the the three
3: I like how we're ending with some good notes
0: on a positive. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> any, any other thoughts about the end of this movie before we have kind of a, a section for concluding thoughts?
2: I think I've made all of my complaints. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and now, David, have you been answered?
2: <laughs> my complaint was the answer
3: boom
2: <laughs> okay that is gonna make no no sense to anybody who hasn't read till we have faces <laughs> so please come and listen to yeah. season three of pints for jack
0: that's, that's a great plug for your show yeah, wait, <laughs> yeah, way to turn that
1: into a plug that was that was skillful
0: so as we wrap up the movie here we've now spent the the actual length of the movie talking about the movie so i don't know if we need to talk more about things we liked and disliked Uh, because I think at this point, listeners know how we feel about the movie. I
2: would particularly me.
0: (laughs) Exactly. I would love to know for y'all, if we found out tomorrow, they were remaking this movie and you know, you were the director, what is one change you would make from the book in adapting this book to a movie? We're not talking about, uh, Netflix or anything yet. We can get to that in a minute. Are there any changes that you would make as, as a filmmaker, as you adapt this book?
3: Yeah, you probably won't like my answer as much, but going back to part one that we talked about, stick closer to the script. I mean, I'm fine if people deviate, but there is a very, very, very high bar. And the times they deviated here really frustrated me. Stick to the script, and then the second thing would be, and I'm probably stealing this from you, Daniel, or what you were going to say, but really play out not the theme of saving the world, but the theme of discovery. And Mm -hmm. that could be, as you mentioned, the different islands when they combined them all. Maybe they lost a lot there. Maybe you separate those and play those out more. Uh, maybe there's a way, there's gotta be a way to do it that's still enticing and not too slow. I just think they did it the easy way out.
2: Yeah. I think I'm actually going to say I would do something that this movie did, which is collapse some of the islands into each other. I am totally okay with that. And I think that would streamline the story a little bit more uh, to provide a little bit more of forward forward thrust. Uh, in the episode when Matt and I spoke about the book, I compared it a little bit to uh, Star Trek, uh, particularly the original series where it's, it's very episodic. Mm-hmm. Okay, this, this week we're going to this planet where the women are blue. Now this week they're green. Uh, and so I, I think it would have been fine to collapse the islands in the way that they did. Goldwater and Dragon, for example, skip out uh, some, of, some of the earlier ones. But I would say Beyond that, stay more faithful to Lewis's dialogue and, uh, and, and, and the tone a little bit more. And it doesn't have to, everything doesn't have to end with a big bad and uh, a beam going up into the sky.
1: Yeah, I, would, I think I would do the same thing, just sticking a little closer to the source material and definitely no mist, um, but also not feeling the need to have battles everywhere because there, there aren't as many in this book. Yeah,
2: I I think I've said this a couple of times as we've talked about this. I I do think that what they were shooting at could have worked, but it, it just wasn't coherent. I just really don't think that they spent enough time with both the source material and what they themselves had written to think about, was this cohesive? Did this really hold together? Were the narrative arcs for the characters in the movie as a whole really solid? And instead, it was just more of a confusing mess. Hmm. I mean, the whole thing with Caspian's father, just, I mean, just every now and again, there's something mentioned and it just goes nowhere.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with a lot of y'all's points. And, and since uh, Matt already stole mine, I, I will change <laughs> mine too. And I'll use it as a segue uh, to our, our last little thing we'll do to wrap up here, which is that if I was the director, I would say, uh, we're no longer making a movie, we're doing a mini series. Because I, I really do believe that this book just doesn't work super well as a movie i think it can work but i think that ultimately it works best as an episodic story where instead of exploring or you know saving the world we're exploring different themes every episode make it like star trek right i mean i i i'm not as familiar with the original series but this could totally fit like a next generation model of let's explore something new every week and there are or there is maybe a a season-long theme that's happening which is like we see in the book. But it's it's not about saving the world. It's about its small character moments and its um, exploration and discovery, and not. Sa- and, and honestly, just to keep with my Star Trek thing, it's it's the same issue that Star Trek's having with a lot of the newer shows, where it's always about saving things and defeating bad guys, and not about you know uh, going forth and exploring the universe, right? Um, and so this is something that is probably hopefully hopefully going to be happening soon because uh, Netflix has the rights now to Narnia. Um, Although we're not sure exactly what's going on, Douglas Gresham, even as recently as uh, you know, this past November, said that they're still in talks. He hasn't heard much, but that the plan is that you know it it should be happening soon. I think I think we read the Hollywood Reporter. I think said that it was like a uh, nine-digit figure that they spent on uh, on the rights to Narnia, which is uh, quite high, and so we can expect that there will be something. And I'd love to know, as we wrap up here, what are your hopes for? Uh, this this book in particular, uh, as a Netflix show or movie.
3: Well, now I'm going to steal from you and just say I think you you nailed it with the the concept of stringing out the different episodic scenes. There is a lot of incredible character development potential in this book, in journeys that people can relate to, and so the episodic way of doing it provides a fantastic opportunity to to let the listener enter into that, that journey and that story.
2: Yeah, I'm going to steal yours as well. I think, I think that's the main thing. When they're in Netflix and they've got the possibility of doing episodes, this book would work much more easily. Uh, I think my only other real desire for this book is for them to really nail the end because the final few chapters of this book, you suddenly go onto a different plane. It's a very different feel. You, you, you have a real sense of anticipation that where they're sailing is into something very strange and new and wonderful, and I just I, I pray if they try for that that they do really nail it because I, I reread the book in anticipation for this season, and uh, yeah, there there were there were some man tears right at the end. I, I, I want I want the Netflix season to do the same thing to me.
1: How about you, Phil? Yeah. I didn't- I was just thinking as um, Matt and David were talking about this, I'd, I'm very excited for an episodic version. Um, I really like a lot of films and I love the kind of two to three hour time frame that things work in. And I also love how much work goes into making everything um, kind of succinct and well paced and put together. But um, some of the things I've enjoyed most are when things can build on each other over a long period of time. So I've really enjoyed really like a kind of five to six season, um, set of episodes. I really think that works well. And this would fit, you know, we, we know this would fit because we've gone chapter by chapter and every chapter does kind of work like that. And I think that they'll probably combine them like we talked about before. Um, but this just, there's so much good stuff in here. And I think it needs a little longer than two to three hours and I'm excited to see what they do there.
0: All right. Well, those are great thoughts. I know I am really excited for what Netflix does. I'm itching for more news. We haven't had any in a long time. And so, uh, ho- hopefully, uh, this summer we'll get some, we'll get some, some news around the project. So, uh, any final thoughts before we wrap up the show?
2: Hollywood try harder next time. <laughs> and I'm available for consulting. Yeah. David will be watching. You might as well hire him. <laughs> I've actually often said that my ideal job would be a uh, proofreader uh, just because I would spend my days reading, finding other people's mistakes, telling them about them, and they thank me for
0: it. <laughs> well, David and Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about this movie with us. This has been so much fun over the course of both of these episodes to to really break down this movie and just talk about Narnia and C.S. Lewis with y'all. Well, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's
1: been a delight. It's been so fun to have you guys on. I'm glad you could make it.
0: All right. Well, this episode is made possible by our patrons over at patreon.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can listen to a bonus episode each month along with other rewards. Special thanks goes to Elias Dean, Madeline Heising, Hannah Anderson, John Marr, and Emily Margaret for supporting us at the Care Paravel level. You can follow us into Narnia on our Twitter or Facebook pages. And if you have any feedback, you can email us at Podcast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 406-646-6733. We'd always appreciate a review on Apple Podcasts because this helps other listeners find the show and join through our read-through. Also, make sure you're subscribed to the show in your favorite podcast app so you can wake up with a new episode every other Wednesday. Thank you for coming along on this journey, and we'll be back next time with Chapter 1 of The Silver Chair.